to. So what do you think podcast where we discuss weird and unsolved mysteries and events and give you our completely unprofessional opinion on them. I'm Jay and here with me is B. Hey, hey, hey. All right. So I'm so, so excited about tonight's case because this is like my pet case. I think everyone who's into true crime has like their case that they just absolutely love. And I've got so many books about this here that I've read. Um, Everyone's got a different theory about it. But tonight we're going to be talking about the Dyatlov Pass mystery. Do you know anything about this case? No. (laughs) Simple. Straight up. No. No. Name does not ring a bell at all. So not even a little bit. Yeah, not even a little bit. So this will right. be interesting. That's good. We're going, going in fresh. In, yeah, going completely fresh. Okay. All right. Let's do it. Okay. So in 1959, nine Russian hikers disappeared in the northern Ural Mountains of Siberia. They were all students of Ural Polytechnic Institute, which is like a like a university. Um, And they were all extremely experienced hikers and mountaineers. They had completed their grade two hiking certificates. So over there in Russia, they take hiking very seriously. So they'd done their grade two and they were looking to do their grade three, which would then allow them to be hiking guides to other people. The leader of the group was somebody called Igor Dyatlov, and he was a 23-year-old radio engineering student. The rest of the group comprised of the following people. And I do apologize because I'm going to get these names so wrong with my pronunciation, but here we go. There was Yuri Doroshenko, a 21-year-old man, Ludmila Dubinina, a 20-year-old female, and they called her Luda, Mm -hmm. Georgi Krivonchenko, a 23-year-old male, Alexander Kolovatov, a 24-year-old male, Zenaida Kolmorogorova, a 22-year-old female, they called her Zena. Mm-hmm. Rustam Slobodin, 23-year-old male. Nikolai Thibault Brignoles, a 23-year-old man. And Semyon Zolotaryov, a 38-year-old man. So he was a little bit older than the rest of them. He wasn't a student, but he was there to guide them and teach them because he was older and more experienced. And then there was also 21-year-old man, uh, Yuri Yudin, but he didn't end up being part of the mystery because he left the group a little bit early in the hike. So we'll get into why he left a little bit later. First of all, all of these people are very smart, very impressive people. Some are working for the special Soviet Union projects that are going on at the time. They're all level two hikers. They want to be qualified for their level three. So they're going to do this massive hike. So it wasn't an easy hike. It was up in the Ural Mountains. There's snow, there's ice, there's all sorts of things to worry about. But at the end of it, they were going to get their qualifications. So to do this, because it was such a complicated hike, they needed special permission. At the time, there was another person that was going to be in the group with them, but they pulled out at the last minute. And that's when Semyon Zolotarov, who was the older guy, he then sort of slotted into the group. So they weren't entirely happy about that to start with because they're all friends. They're all uni mates together. They know each other. Now there's this old dude who wants to crash their party and they're a bit like, who are you? What do you want? But this is what the government and the parks department, their version of the parks department had requested him to go with them. Um, So they were all friends other than him. Um, They had, some had dated before. 
The route was approved by the Sverdlovsk City Route Commission. Um, And they were the people that needed to give all of the sign-off for any of these sorts of expeditions. Their goal was to reach a mountain called Otorten. And this was going to use that Category 3 route, which was the most difficult category of route that there is. So this was going to be some serious hiking. It was going to be 10 kilometres of mountains and snow, and they had to go all the way up and then come all the way back again. They set off on January 25th, 1959. They first caught a train to the town of Ivdel, and then they had to take a small truck to a town called Vazai. There they stocked up on all their food supplies and got ready and probably slept in a bed for the last time before they set out. They kept diaries, and this was to show proof of their trek. So it wasn't enough to just say, yep, we went on this hike and we got to the end and came back. They actually had to show proof. So they had cameras, they had diaries, they were all supposed to keep a diary each, and then there was also like a group diary that they had to keep as well. About these diaries, when all their belongings were found, these diaries, most of them were found. Not all of them were, though, and there was one found that was not signed, so they never actually worked out whose it was, so it was anonymous. In this anonymous diary, it states that Alexander was testing a device of some sort. No idea what this device was. There's no mention of what it could do or anything like that. My question would be, what is it? Was it heavy? Was it something that you would necessarily take with you on a, on a huge hike where every gram counts to what you're doing and and how you're struggling going up that mountain. All we know is there was some sort of device that he was testing and there was no real outcomes about that. On January 27th, they started trekking towards Otorten. At this time, Yuri Yudin decided that he wasn't able to continue. So like I said before, he never actually continued on to the main hike after they'd had their time in in the town before they head out he decided that he just wasn't up to it he had a condition that meant that he had some recurring sciatica all the time as well as joint pain and just generally feeling not up for it and I feel like this is the sort of hike where you want to be at your best you want to be on your a game at the time that you want to do it so he's like no I'm bowing out see you later so he leaves the group and he goes home they're really sad to see him go but they have to carry on without him Dyatlov did tell him, though, to just let the sports club know who they were organised with, that they might take a little bit longer than they thought they would. I think that they had got some information about the weather perhaps not being so favourable and they talked to some locals about the trail and they just decided that it may just take them a little longer and they didn't want to panic anyone. So they said, look, when you get back to town, just let them know we might be a couple of extra days. They were supposed to be back by the 12th of February. So it was around about a two week sort of hike. Um, So he just told Yuri to let them know. One of the people that gave the advice about the hike and perhaps it taking a little bit longer was a local hunter by the name of Rimple. Now, Rimple will come up later as being important down the track, but they'd spoken to this guy. He'd said, look, I really feel like you're not going to get it done in two weeks. They set off along the way. They encounter some of the local tribes' markings on the trees. So the local tribes up there are called the Mansi. They're known to be quite peaceful people. They're just hunter-gatherers themselves. They kind of keep to themselves. But they find a trail of a Mansi hunter and they follow it for a little while. They think, all right, this guy's gone this way. That seems good. We'll go along there as well. 
on one of these days, Zena made a diary entry and it was her last diary entry and it very mysteriously just had the one word, Rimple. That was it. So that's when he comes back into it. We don't know why. We know that he wasn't the hunter that they were following. He wasn't Mansi. He was a local from the town um, and he could be accounted for in the days after anyway. But for some reason, she just wrote the word Rimple in a diary and that was the last thing she ever wrote. This leads you to think, why did she write that? Did he reappear at some stage down the track maybe? Or maybe it's just that it was really, really tough going and it was like, oh, God, Rimple, if only we'd listened to him, you know? Like he told us this was going to be rough and why didn't we listen? So, that you know, these are all things that are a possibility. Okay, so on this same day um, they celebrate Alexander's birthday, but we then find out later that his birthday wasn't until November. So he told them that it was his birthday. Why did he tell them that it was? They're his friends. So you think they would have known that it wasn't his birthday? Some people sort of link that to um, what they're doing. Maybe they were celebrating something else at the time, but it does say in the diaries that it was his birthday and we're celebrating. So that's one of those things that's a big question mark over this case. On January 31st, Dyatlov wrote in the group diary and he said temperature is minus 24 degrees Celsius and it's very bad weather. So that's pretty cold, I've got to say. I think <laughs> the coldest I've ever experienced was when I was in Switzerland and it was minus eight and I thought I was going to die. So Yeah, same, yeah. same. Yeah, so minus 24, they're yeah. camping, they're yeah. out in the snow and it's really bad weather. They're, they're struggling at this point. Yeah. He writes that they're slow going. It's been a really hard slog. They've actually come to the bottom of the mountain at this time on January 31st. So they've hiked in up to the mountain and it's now time for them to start going up to the summit. The summit is called Kolak Siak and they decide to set out at 3 p.m. on that day, which to me seems a little bit late. Usually when you go for a summit attempt, you do it first thing in the morning, but Maybe there was really bad weather that morning and it just wasn't possible to do it. And instead of waiting till the next day, they just said, stuff it, we're doing it. They cached some food so that it would be there for the return. So this is quite common for hikers to or mountaineers to do um, before they do a summit push. They'll pack a lot of their stuff at the base of the mountain just so they don't have to cart it up the hill. Mm -hmm. Um, So they cached a lot of their stuff. They got a little bit off course a couple of hours into it. So they got to a point where they had some decisions to make. So they could either go down the hill one and a half kilometres to a wooded area and start again to go for the summit push, or they could camp on the side of the mountain and wait for the next day. So they found themselves, whoops, we've gone off course. What are we going to do? Do we lose all that that time and that effort that we've just done for one? And one and a half kilometres up a mountain is pretty hard. Or do we just stop here? And it's not ideal, but we'll just camp and we'll try again tomorrow. They decide to camp. They actually, there's a lot of photos from their cameras that was recovered and I'll put them all on the Facebook page. Um, But one of the photos was them like digging a flat area for them to set their tent up in. So um, we see photos taken of them setting up the tent in a blizzard, what looks like a blizzard, and digging that trench to pitch their tent in. Fast forward to the 20th of February. So we're three weeks later. It's been an extra week than they were supposed to have taken and nobody really panics at first because, you know, these things can take time and there can be delays and there was really bad weather. And it's only when the families of the hikers start going, no, no, they should have been back by now. Can you please look into this? That, 
a rescue was arranged. At first, the rescue effort was only teachers and students. So it wasn't really the professionals or anything yet. They got together a crew and hiked up on the 26th of February. So we're talking three weeks now since they were last heard of or last seen in their diaries. Um, and they found their camp pretty easily. I guess they were on the side of a mountain, so it was pretty easy to see them. Yeah. They found their campsite. The tent was half collapsed and mostly covered with snow. It wasn't completely buried. You could see that it was a tent. It's just on the middle of it, there was a bit of snow. Yeah. The tent was totally empty, but all their belongings were still inside. And I mean, everything. So their clothes, their bags, their cooking gear. I, I believe there was like a cup of hot chocolate still sitting on the, on the stove ready to be drank. Like everything was just as though they got up and just left. The, and, and also their shoes were in there as well, which was a bit weird because you think if then they're out there in the snow, why don't they have their shoes on? So there was quite a few shoes still in there. The tent had been cut from the inside. So there were slashes, like vertical slashes, and they had noticed that it had been done as if someone was inside trying to get out, but it wasn't torn. So they were just cuts. The front of the tent would have been able to be accessed. I think that those sorts of tents, like you, you almost like lace them shut. But there was evidence later that we'll talk about that there were people outside the tent at the time, so they would have been open. So I don't know why these people needed to slash the tent. And it was slashed at the back of the tent as well, so that, like, they were almost trying to get away from the front of it. On looking around, they find nine sets of footprints, so all of the people. Um, but that what they notice is that it's not really boots that they're looking at. It's not shoes. So they notice that people are either barefoot or in socks, or I think someone had one shoe on. So they, they were taken off without any shoes. They followed the footprints to that forest line, which that was that 1.5 kilometres away. They try, and, they try and follow the footprints for that entire time. But after about 500 metres, the tracks become covered with snow, so it becomes a lot more difficult. But they keep pushing onto the forest edge. At the edge of the forest, there was a whole heap of pine trees there. And at the bottom of one of the pine trees, they found the remnants of a fire. So one that had been lit fairly recently. It wasn't hot or anything still, but you could see that somebody had made a fire and it hadn't been covered over with snow or anything. It didn't take them long to find that near that fire huddled around it were the bodies of Yuri Jurashenko and Georgi Krivonenko. They had no shoes on and they were only dressed in their underwear. So they were out there totally naked, frozen to death. Now, the country that was next to them, where they were, had broken branches up to five metres in the air. So it looked as though someone had been trying to climb that tree at some stage. Some people have speculated that maybe they were trying to get wood for the fire, but it wasn't the sort of wood that you would burn. And they would have known that. Remember, these people were outdoorsy. They knew what they were doing. And this specific tree, A, it wasn't the type of wood that burns well, but B, it would have been green because it would have been getting pulled off yeah. the tree. Yeah, And there was quite a bit of good wood for fire around the area. So that's what they used for their fire. So it looked as though someone had tried to climb the tree and then for some reason the branches had actually broken. There were actually bits of their skin on the tree bark going up the tree. They had been panicking to get up there yeah. and then falling or whatever they were doing. Their bodies showed something strange as well. Do you understand the concept of liver mortis? Have you heard of that before? I feel like I have, yes. Basically, when someone or something dies, all the blood pools towards the lower region, which is touching the ground. So if you die on your back, 
your liver mortis will be like a big bruise on the underside of your back. People can determine whether a body has been moved after death because of this, because if your liver mortis is on your back and you're laying in your stomach, it means you've been moved at some stage after you died, right? Mm -hmm. Their liver mortis of these two guys, of Yuri and Georgie, was on the opposite to where it should have been. One was on on their front and his liver mortis was on the back and the other one was the opposite. They'd been turned over at some point after they died, they discovered. On February 27th, they continued looking and they found Igor Dyatlov and he was found about 300 metres from the campfire, heading back towards the tent. With him was Zena and Rustam, who also looked like they were heading back towards the tent. Zena was 630 metres from the campfire and Rustam was 480 metres from the campfire. It looked as though they were trying to crawl back to the tent. That was the impression that everyone got. They kind of died in that position. When they took them back, there was a recovery mission for the bodies. They couldn't find everyone else at the time, but they thought we'll take these guys back. They did autopsies and that sort of thing. There was no obvious cause of death found except for the fact that they died of hypothermia. So they weren't killed by anyone else, but they did die of being out there in the cold. Rustam did have a very minor skull fracture, but it wasn't enough to have killed him and it looked like it was possibly made from when he froze. So there are join lines in your skull and if the um, freezing gets into it quickly, then it can crack it open. So they thought it might be that. Mm-hmm. They were also found in what's called corpse beds. So this is a pretty sort of descriptive uh, way of describing it, but basically they fell before they died. There was essentially melted snow all around them. So they died while they were laying there and then the snow sort of encases you because it's turned to liquid it freezes around you as your body temperature drops as well after you've died they've done the autopsies they've taken everyone back they've taken photos of the weird campsite they don't know what's happening it's a bit of a mystery then we wait till may and on may 5th they decide that there has been a spring thaw we start to see a little bit more evidence coming coming to head So a Mansi man was in the forest doing his hunting and about 75 metres into the forest away from where this campfire had been found, he actually found a ravine and under four metres of snow or where it would have been, there was some more bodies there. So these bodies were actually quite well dressed. They had, it looked as though they were actually wearing the clothes from the other guys, which they'd already found, the ones that were around the fire. Uh, It looks as though... That might be why the bodies were moved after they died. Perhaps they died and then everyone says, look, we've got to survive. We're just going to have to take their clothes off and that's why they've moved them over. Yeah. So they were quite well dressed. These bodies were totally different to the other ones. So they did have some injuries and some were fatal injuries. So the older guy, Semenyan and Luda, had major chest fractures. Luda's heart had been pierced by her rib. It was that bad. They also found Nikolai down there and he had skull fractures. Now, experts weighed in on this after the autopsies and they decided that the injuries that they had they had sustained were actually similar to those people who had died in a really, really bad car accident. It was that extreme, like something serious had to have hit them. Yeah, yeah. They also looked mummified, which was quite weird at the time as well. 
they didn't really know why that phenomena had happened. Now, despite the fact that they had these huge internal injuries that looked like they had been thrown up against a brick wall by something, there were no external injuries. So the internal injuries were the only thing they had. There were no bruises, no abrasions, nothing like that. They looked like they had been crushed by a huge amount of pressure, essentially. Yes. Luda was, though, she was missing her tongue, eyes and lips, as well as tissue from her face and a portion of her skull. So she had a bit of tissue missing there. Semyon was missing his eyeballs and Alexander Kolovatov was found there too and he was missing his eyebrows but had no other injuries. We don't know why they were missing these bits and pieces from their bodies. Was it animal predation? That's been a theory that's been floated that something's sort of come along and feasted on the soft, squishy bits of them. That's pretty gross, but, you know, it happens. Yeah. Um, you know, that why were these injuries post-mortem? Were they something that's happened after someone's come along later or did they happen when they were actually killed? So these were the questions that they were asking. It looked as though these four had dug a den and used branches to make a shelter. So potentially they may have lasted a little bit longer than the others, but they weren't found in this den. So they'd left the den at some stage and they were found a short distance away. Interestingly, when they were taken back to have the autopsies and everything done. Somebody got it in their head that they were going to test them for radiation and they found that all of their clothing was radioactive. Another element to the strangeness there. All in all, the investigation found that six members died of hypothermia and three had died of fatal injuries. All had died within six to eight hours of their last meal and in their tent it looked like they were kind of in the middle of it. So we can maybe infer that. They couldn't find exact causes of death, but their official finding was that the cause of deaths were calamity or overwhelming force, which was quite disappointing to most people because that's not really an answer. Yeah. So what do you think so far? <laughs> oh, it's weird. Yeah. I'm just a little taken aback by it all, to be honest. <laughs> Very... I don't know. It almost feels supernatural. Well, that was definitely one of the theories posited by people. We'll go through the, all the theories later. Well, yeah. I mean, whether you believe in that stuff or not, but yeah, just very bizarre. But the, like the taking of the eyeballs and tongue. Yeah. Like, okay, yes, there's wild animals, but that's very sort of specific things to take weird religious culty sort of thing it's the satanists out in the mountains yeah <laughs> yeah i wonder what the mancy practices are like they have any um, pagan roots of you know mm. taking bits and pieces of people probably not they're supposed to be quite a peaceful people but who knows the other thing too is that uh, the ones who had been in the ravine they had been under four meters of snow as well we know that that's not from snowfall because the rest of them weren't under four meters of snow it begs a question why were they under four meters of snow yeah <laughs> which is a bit strange as well yeah yeah so let's keep going because now we're going to get to the weird stuff as if that wasn't weird enough yeah the kgb was on the scene during the investigation some of those hikers actually turns out had some top secret positions within the kgb so they took over the investigation pretty quickly, which is, is a little bit dodgy, really. I mean, what does that say? What are they trying to hide? Yeah. At the tent site, there was a ski pole that was found to have been cut. 
So not snapped, not broken against something, but someone had actually cut it for some reason. That's strange because you would have needed that ski pole. I don't know if it was an extra one. Would you have carried an extra one seeing as it was like extra to carry up a hill? But they they found it and there was nothing else damaged either. So it was just this ski pole was cut in half. So I don't know why that was. They also found a ski sticking out of the ground at the bottom of the mountain where the cache was. Now I'm assuming this was to mark where they put their cache. And, but that really wasn't, it wasn't actually explained whether that was an extra ski as well. Again, something extra to have carried with you all that way, but then you wouldn't have gone up that hill without it. Like it would have been impossible to have walked in that snow without skis. Mm. So that's how they were hiking. They were hiking on skis. One of the really, really interesting things that sort of piqued my attention about it was that when they found the footsteps that were leading away from the tent, they showed that they weren't actually running. So the the idea that I got when I first heard this story was that they'd got up in the middle of dinner, they'd been panicked by something, they'd cut their tent open, they'd ripped their way out and they'd just taken off into the night. That was sort of my first impression of what must have happened. But that's not the case. They actually showed that these footsteps showed that they were just walking. They were walking away from the tent. Why would they have walked? Now, thinking about the 1.5 kilometres away thing through all of that snow, they've estimated that it probably would have taken them about an hour to get that far. So if you're running away from something that you're scared of, A, you're not walking. B, do you keep on walking for an hour with no shoes on and no clothes, not enough clothes and that sort of thing? That was really weird as well. These guys know what they need to do to survive and they would have known that leaving that tent would have been a death sentence without all their proper gear. So why were they walking away? Was somebody making them walk is my question. Yeah, that's yeah. Yeah, that's it. Now, the campfire in the forest, they said that it had had the capacity to keep on burning and it shouldn't have gone out on its own. So they were thinking more that it was extinguished rather than actually just burning out of its own accord. Was it wind or perhaps they didn't want to draw attention to themselves? They, they've lit it to try and stay warm, but then they've realised that they're drawing attention to themselves maybe. Also, the footprints look like they were huddled together at first near the tents. It looks as though they have bunched together at the back of the tent and then started walking away. So it's like they were scared and they've made this decision as a group of we're going to walk towards the forest line now. So that was a bizarre thing as well to me. On the line that they're walking towards the forest, it looks as though they're all sort of walking in each other's footsteps. So they're walking in an actual line, but occasionally someone will stagger out from the line but then come back into the line again. like Almost like they're being told, no, get back in line. Yeah. So that was interesting. They couldn't decide how many sets of footprints there were just because people were walking in each other's steps and that sort of thing. But they showed that at least one person was wearing boots. Now, we know that nobody was wearing a full set of boots. One person was wearing one boot. So there was there were footprints out there showing somebody had worn boots. Yeah. Also, you'd expect that if they decided to go out into the snow like that, that they will probably wear their skis because that's how you walk in the snow. The footprints do end halfway to the tree line and we don't really know why. We don't know what happened then. Maybe they did try and make a break for it at that point or something like that, but they weren't in that that set line anymore at that point. We know that whatever happened to them 
to the people specifically that had all of the injuries, we know that that didn't happen back at the tent because they wouldn't have been able to hike with those injuries. They were pretty serious injuries that probably would have killed them pretty quickly. So there's no way that these people were hiking for an hour in the snow in very little clothes with those injuries. So whatever killed them, killed them later. We know that some people were wearing no clothes and other people were wearing like three or four layers of clothes. Like some people actually were just piled on almost everything that they owned. So what does this mean? Uh, does this mean that we know that there was some clothes stealing after the two had died around the fire, but apparently there was even more clothes than that. Yeah. To me, this maybe suggests that perhaps there were a couple of people outside the tent already when they decided to take their walk towards the forest. Um, and there was evidence to suggest that a couple of guys were out there like peeing, like going to the toilet or something when whatever happened, happened. So feel as though maybe those are the ones that rugged up that were doing that. Now, the bodies all showed abrasions on their eyelids. So there was suggestion that perhaps they'd been blindfolded at one point. Yeah. Which is interesting. Dyatlov's knuckles were bruised like he'd been in a fight. Um, and there was also a deep two centimeter cut on one of his palms. So they suggested that it could have been him grabbing a knife. Now, that's not ruling out that the group didn't have a fight between them, but there's no, nothing mentioned in any of the diaries about a fight or people, you know, not getting along with each other or anything like that. So it would essentially come out of nowhere if it was them fighting amongst themselves. Yeah. Zena also had injuries on her knuckles, like she'd been in a fight as well. Yuri Doroshenko had a swollen uh, and split upper lip and Yuri Kravanchenko had a bruise on his head. These were all the people that had died of hypothermia. So they were the ones down at the tree line and the ones trying to get back to camp. They were the ones that had these injuries. Yeah. As well as the injuries on her knuckles, Zena had a really long bloody bruise around her side that looked like someone had hit her with a baton that was about one foot long. So it was like a long, thin strip around the side of her. Luda, who was found in the ravine, she had a fractured hyoid bone. Was she strangled? So do you know about the hyoid bone? We talked about it. Yes. So we talked about this in another one. It is, it's yeah. the bone that breaks when you are strangled. Yeah. So people have basically said that that's the only way that you can break it is because you have to apply pressure from all sides. So Luda had been strangled by something or someone. The medical examiner took all of this into account and, you know, probably was dealt a great big plate of what the actual. Um, yeah. And he said that it looked like the internal injuries and the fact that there were no external injuries on the ones that had died in the ravine, he likened them to injuries witnessed by people who have been exposed to shockwaves of a bomb. It was that sort of thing, like this extreme pressure situation that completely obliterates your insides but leaves your outsides intact. That was the only thing you could think that it was like. Other interesting things, when Zolotarov, the older guy, was found, he had an extra camera around his neck. Now, nobody seemed to have known that he had an extra camera. It was a secret camera, which obviously makes us ask, why did he need an extra camera? Why was his one camera not enough? And he had grabbed it when they took off on their voyage into the bush. So why? Why did he think that it was going to be important? Was he trying to keep it to himself because there was secret stuff on it? Or did he think he was going to have to take some pictures with it of some sort? He was the best dressed as well. So he looked like he was one of the people that was outside at the time of the event. 
Um, and it's been speculated that because he had his camera around his neck, he was actually outside taking photos of something at the time. When he was found in the ravine, he had a pencil and paper in his hand for some reason. And it was like poised in his hand like he was about to write something when he died. So that was weird. Going back to the diaries, three of them ended up being, being seen as missing. Had they been removed? Had they been hidden by them at some stage in the forest? Nobody ever found them. There was just no suggestion as to where they have gone. So someone's obviously taken them. That's, that's the theory is that somebody took them. There was something in there that was important. Mm. Another really interesting thing that came out was that in the days before this happened, lots of people who had been around in the area had seen lots of lights in the sky. Other hikers, a police director, searchers, other, other hunting parties and hikers and that sort of thing, um, they had all seen weird lights in the sky around this time. It was actually another group of hikers who took a different route than the Dyatlov group who saw some really weird balls of light in their direction of where the Dyatlov group was. So they were doing the same hike, but they were taking a different line and they just noticed these weird balls up in the sky. Now, going back to the tree line at this uh, pine slash cedar tree area, they'd noticed that a knife had been used to cut the branches for the firewood, but that knife was never found. Nobody had a knife with them at the time. Not one of the people had it and, and all of their knives were back at the tent accounted for. So a question was asked, who cut the trees? What knife did they use? Where is that knife now? They did find an empty sheath at the ravine though. They also found in the ravine a military boot cover, just one, and none of the people, none of the hikers had been using those military boot covers. So there was a question as to why that was there as well. Now, when they found the tent, as I said, it had collapsed a little bit and there was snow on top of it. Not enough snow to have buried it, but just enough to have sort of squashed the top of it a little bit. And there was also a random torch found on top of the tent as well. So they can't account for why that was there. After the investigation took off, there ended up being some very high up officials getting involved in the case. And you have to ask yourself, if this was just some random student hikers, would these high up KGB and officials be involved in this case. And they seem to come into the case once the radiation was found on their clothes. So it's like, oh, okay, red flag, we've got to step in here. And once that was that happened, they actually came in and they shut down the mountain for the next four years and they didn't let anyone hike up there for quite a while. So the government has actually stepped in at one point and said, nope, we are taking over from here. Wow. So, what do you think? Well, the government's involved. Mm-hmm. Radiation. Yep. Involved. <laughs> Radiation's involved, yep. Aircraft are involved. You think aircraft is the light balls? Yeah. Yep. yep. This reminds me of a X-Files episode. <laughs> oh, um, well then. Yeah, like series one, episode two, maybe. So like early X-Files. It is a weird one. I feel sick. <laughs> yeah. Like so I just you... I just feel creeped out. But the thing yeah. is, it all sounds creepy, but I think it was done by people. I think it yeah. was done by the government, mm-hmm. by KGB. Mm-hmm. Um, these having like 
extra cameras and having to write I don't know like the diaries being missing and mm-hmm. and that sort of stuff I just yeah yeah also There's the a- insertion the insertion of uh Zolya Turov the older guy at the last minute and he was the one with the extra camera like uh, he had yeah. been a plant of some sort maybe yeah yeah and then the, mm. Mm. Mm, yeah. mm, mm. well let's get into some theories okay first theory is Rimple. so we know that he was chatting to everyone he's kind of convinced them that they're going to take a bit longer and and then there was the writing of the word Rimple in one of the diaries so he was interviewed and he said that he had helped them plan their ascent and he had warned them where not to go and cautioned them about the weather and that sort of thing it came out that he was a forestry officer he actually had expert knowledge of the area and he lived there as well yeah Uh, The question is, did he have something to do with it? Uh, Why did Zena write Rimple in her diary? Could it be that they saw the troubles ahead, like I said, and then they're just like, oh, my God, Rimple, like, why didn't we listen to you? And then you've got to ask the question, could one man actually terrorise nine other people? (laughs) Like, I just feel like one person could not have taken them all out in the way that they were taken out, really. Not in the way that they were taken out. No, that's it. So, And nobody was shot with bullets or anything or stabbed with knives or, you know, they've died of natural causes, you know, half of them of natural causes, i.e. hypothermia, and the other half of weird-ass injuries that nobody can really explain. So I just don't think a person really could have done that. Maybe she was writing her diary entry and was interrupted. Yeah, that's true. Maybe that as well. So, you know, like, yeah, you know, he was right, was what she was going to say. Yeah, that's it. Damn you, Rimple. <laughs> Should have listened to him more or, you know. Yeah, exactly. So mm-hmm. whenever anyone talks about this case, they, of course, have to mention the Mansi, so the local tribes, um, you know, that they were in their area, there were markings on the trees, that sort of thing. But there's no evidence of this at all. And as I said, they've been known as being a peaceful people. So, And, and also it was noted that they weren't actually in that specific area at the time. And also why would they? Like, <laughs> you know, like what's the point? What would be the point for them to yeah. actually kill all these people in such a strange way? So I think we can rule out the Mansi and I think we can probably rule out Rimple as well. So the other theory is that there was something happening inside the tent. Maybe a fight broke out between them or there was an explosion of some sort. Maybe they were, you know, cooking their dinner on their stove and it exploded. And this is why they cut their way out of the tent. I guess to me there would have been evidence of that. Yeah, wouldn't there be? Yeah, there'd Bird be evidence. Stuff. Yeah, or or everything would have been in disarray if there was a fight broken out. You would have seen things knocked over. I mean, there was there was food still sitting in plates. There was drinks still sitting in cups that hadn't been knocked over. So I yeah. just feel like the panic wasn't inside the tent. Yeah. And when they looked at these knife, knife scrapes that came from inside the tent, they actually found that they'd been trying a couple of goes before they actually got to cut the canvas. So there were like scratches from the knives first. So it was, you know, a real panicked, we've got to get out of here. And the inner of the tent, yeah, just wasn't disturbed. So to me, if they were trying to leave that tent in a mad panic, there would have been rips. Like you would have made that cut and you would just use your hands and ripped apart and everyone would have like piled out. Yeah. Yeah, I just feel like whatever happened didn't happen inside the tent. Uh, Another theory was that someone or something attacked the tent. So something was happening outside the tent. There were no other footprints around. There was no evidence of other people around. And you would have seen 
evidence of an animal you know it would have been chaos there would have been tracks there would have been I mean an animal if it was a bear or something like that as well uh, and I think there was talk of wolverines and things like that you know yeah. that you would have seen evidence on their bodies of them having been attacked by an animal yeah I just feel like that's probably not likely either of them. yeah like couldn't you take on a you've got knives and stuff yeah and if there's really a bear there about to try and kill you like Why do you just form an orderly out. line and march down the mountain yeah. over an hour with no shoes on yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah no it doesn't make sense <laughs> Now, one of the favourite theories and one that I read actually recently, an article was done, and I think that it was by uh, some researchers, but they didn't actually research the area. They didn't go to the area or anything. They just sort of put together all the data that they had and come up with their most likely explanation, and that is that an avalanche happened. Basically, these guys were all in their tent and either an avalanche happened or they thought an avalanche was going to happen because clearly an avalanche didn't happen because the tent wasn't buried. Yeah, um, but maybe they thought that there was an avalanche coming um, and that might explain why they cut the back of their tent rather than going through the front because they had actually perched their tent facing uphill. So maybe they thought it was going to come through the front of the tent and they had to go out the back or whatever. But still, it didn't look like they left the tent in a hurry. They cut the tent, but they didn't race out of the tent. And the footsteps show that they walked slowly for one and a half kilometres. At some point, if you thought, there was an avalanche coming towards you, you'd realise there wasn't and you'd stop walking in barefoot towards the forest. Yeah. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like that's something that you panic off into the distance, ah, you know. Mm. I know that people like to say, you know, Occam's razor, the most likely thing probably happened, but it just doesn't explain it to me. It's really not the most likely thing in my mind. No. Also, people have been up there since. So people, it's almost like a pilgrimage these days. People actually go and do this hike so they can work out what happened, you know, yeah. all those years ago. And it's been found that that slope that they were actually camped on wasn't actually that steep and it definitely wasn't steep enough for an avalanche to have been an issue. It wasn't like the sheer side of a cliff or anything like that. It was just yeah. a little bit of a, a little bit of a hump sort of thing. So yeah. Yeah. I know that it's every, it's a lot of people's favourite theories and it's the main theory, but no, that's a no from me. It also doesn't explain the injuries at the other end. Exactly. Well, some people say, oh, the avalanche, avalanche like drove them into the forest and knocked them down into the ravine and the injuries that they got from the, that knocking into the ravine was what, caught, what, what killed them. But, okay, number one, what about the guys that were at the forest edge? They were there first. They would have been covered by snow. You know, they wouldn't have had all their clothes stolen off them by people that obviously survived that first bit. Yeah. And the ravine as well wasn't like a um, canyon or anything like that. It was quite a slow, slow sloping sort of undulating ravine. So it wasn't something that they could have fallen off to hurt themselves. Mm. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a line through the avalanche theory. I don't like it. Yeah. All right. Another theory was that there was missile testing going on up there at the time. Now, missile testers do as far as I know, find out where these hikers go. So when you do one of these hikes, you've got to log your plan with the parks department. You've got to, um, or the recreation department, whatever it was that, that was guiding this sort of thing. Um, you've got to log it, log your route so that people know where you're going to be. Because, you know, this was Cold War era. There was a lot of that sort of thing going on. They didn't want to accidentally kill anyone. But it was later found that Dyatlov forgot to lodge his papers. <laughs> So he never actually handed in his route. 
So nobody actually knew where they were going to be as far as government officials go. Obviously, missile testing would go a lot to explaining the lights in the sky. Definitely sort of checks out there. The head of the military denies that any testing occurred in that area and that then became the official government position. No, it wasn't us. Yeah. Um, When you look at the photos taken by their cameras, the final two photos taken show some pretty weird pictures and they kind of, they're hard to explain. And as I said, I'll put them on the Facebook page, but they look like almost camera flares, like they could be lights off in the distance. So this goes with that theory that a couple of them were outside when it all happened and potentially taking photos. Um, And maybe they saw lights in the sky and went, what is that? I'm going to take a photo of that, you know, something along those lines. So I think they're probably missile testing we can put a pin in for now. Okay, another interesting theory, and this was a recent book actually, uh, Donnie Iker, I think his name was. I've, I've actually got the book and I've read it recently. Um, he came out with a new book and he reckons he had it solved. He actually went to Russia. Yuri Yudin, the guy that did not go on the hike with them in the end, he went and found him and spoke to him and everything. And yeah. um, he hiked out to the place and he did lots of research and he reckons he's got it solved, right? Yeah. He puts it down to something called infrasound. What infrasound is? is that when you've got a unique topography, which is apparently what this mountain had, it had like a domed top of it or something along those lines, um, and you've got these unique weather events happening at around the same time, can lead to the creation of something called a Kármán vortex. Now, these Kármán vortexes, they come through and they make a sound that makes people lose their minds. So it's almost like, you know, how they say dogs can only hear certain pitches yeah. People can't hear certain levels. It's like that. It's like your body's hearing it, but you're not hearing it. It just makes your, your brain go absolutely mental. Yeah. So what it essentially does is it causes vibrations in the ears of people and they, they just can't pick up what's going on and it gives them a real sense of impending doom. So all of a yeah. sudden they just feel like I'm going to die. I need to do something here. I'm going to die. Although he copied the hike himself, he never actually proved, like it never happened to him while he was up there. Uh, He never experienced the phenomena. And look, although I'm not discounting that Kármán vortexes happen, and I'm sure that they are, and I'm sure that they have absolutely crazy effects on people, to me it doesn't explain the orderly fashion in which they left the tent. We have to remember they didn't run away. They walked away. So I just think that, okay, you've heard this Carmen Vortex, your brain's gone mental, you've just got to get out of there, you've cut your way out of the tent. Do you then just go and spend an hour walking towards the forest and then, you know, sit in the forest for six to eight hours, as we've found from their autopsies, and just wait to die out there? And also it doesn't explain the injuries of the people in the ravine either. So I just, I don't, yeah, I don't like it. And it's the new theory at the moment. So everyone's sort of, oh, he solved it. But no, I just, I just don't think that that is plausible. It doesn't understand injuries. It doesn't, it still doesn't understand. It still doesn't explain the injuries on the yeah. ones in the ravine. That's um, it. it doesn't explain the radioactivity. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't explain the walking in the line. It does explain the not being clothed and not wearing shoes, sort of mm-hmm. like losing their mind. Yeah. Um, 
So that works, yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, What about this so-called extra set of boots and Mm. missing diaries and extra cameras? Mm. Yeah, exactly. There's other elements to this that it doesn't explain. Yeah. 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 Another theory that we have to talk about just because it's Russia is that of the Yeti. And, you know, a lot of people actually stand by this one, um, that this was a Yeti attack. So on one of the cameras, and I think that it was Nikolai's, uh, one of the pictures shows a figure standing in the trees. So you'll be able to see this when I put the, the photos up. It's kind of like a big, dark, man-shaped thing, uh, and it's like got something covering its head. It's some distance away, and it's kind of looking back through the trees at them. And when this yeah. came out, everyone's like, Yeti! <laughs> That's it. That's the answer. <laughs> it was stalking them. Oh, my God. So, yeah, the idea is that this Yeti is stalking them. And, look, as much as I love a good Yeti story... <laughs> I think that the photo actually looks like a person and it looks like either another hunter um, or it looks like maybe a military person or something that's in like just full, I'm trying to stay warm in this really, really cold region sort of gear. Also, maybe it's one of them having a joke with each other. You know, maybe someone's gone off to go to the toilet and then they're like, look at the Yeti over there. So they've like pulled their hat over their head or something, you know. Look, I think that Look, I don't want to. I don't want to rule out that Yetis exist because we don't know something. There's something happening there. That's probably something we'll talk about on another episode. But again, it's just like with the animal attack. You would have seen evidence of this attack from the Yeti. You would have seen big footprints from the Yeti. You know, you just would have seen a lot more. But the Yeti could be a magical creature. <laughs> yeah, maybe he floated. <laughs> maybe yeah, he does look. We can't rule out these things. Okay, we're not we're not here to judge anyone that thinks that yetis are magical creatures. Maybe they are. We don't know. I don't think of the yeti as a mean creature. I think of him as an un- misunderstood creature. I think he's actually quite lovely and gentle. He's just very misunderstood. I love the 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 compassion you said that with. It was beautiful. <laughs> We need something nice in this story. Leave Yeti alone. Leave <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Poor Yeti. That's a bad rap. <laughs> just stop. Just stop he's already with the shy, Yeti. Though. He was just a bit shy. He was just hiding up in the woods. This is not anxiety, a bit of social anxiety. He was just trying to poop in privacy. Like, <laughs> come on. Poor Yeti. Can't even poop in peace. <laughs> So along the same lines as those sorts of theories is everyone also brings up UFOs, okay? So, you know, the lights in the sky, um, weed injuries. Season one, episode two. (laughs) I'm going to go look it up now. Um, Don't hold me to it. I probably meant you because it's a completely wrong episode. Whoops. It's the one with a very young Seth Green that one oh I think I know the one you're talking about actually yeah Yeah. interesting okay all right all right so everything does line up for a UFO situation I've got to say you know like you've got the weirdness you've got the injuries you've got the the lights in the sky and that sort of thing so what gets me though is that they do look like they were frog marched down the hill yeah would aliens do that (laughs) you know what I mean like if you saw a UFO you'd run right yeah I mean, as much as you can run in snow that's deep and you don't have your skis on. Quick, run away in a line. (laughs) In a line, (laughs) quick, with no shoes on. (laughs) Yeah. Finally, (laughs) our final theory is uh, something called catabatic wind. 
Uh, and this is one that's been a fairly recent theory. And catabatic wind is basically when you have a hurricane-like wind just hit all of a sudden and just come out of nowhere. You know, the theory behind this is that sort of scared them and they thought they needed to get away. Uh, they cut up their tent so that it would and put snow on top of it to stop it from blowing away because they know that they knew that they could like sew up the tent at a later date if they needed to and that sort of thing. And then they've gone to the forest to seek shelter at the time. Look, I don't think that they would have left without clothes on in that instance. I think they would have taken the extra couple of seconds to chuck all of these out. theories. There's always a little bit of time. Yeah clothes on the avalanche the avalanche one if you've got time to cut through the back of the tent you've got time to suit up or grab your pack just grab an armful of stuff and put it on later your underwear and i feel like if it was a catabatic wind they wouldn't have been able to light a fire like they wouldn't have been able to get that fire going or anything like that also doesn't explain their injuries like we always say got to take into account these people that have died they are the main theories what do you think um i'm going with like the military Mm -hmm. like this like secret military stuff Mm -hmm. maybe they were made to go out there like Mm -hmm. not the guy that came along at the end like but he died as well so you sort of wonder Mm. what how he fits into it maybe that was their plan all along but he's sort of like guided them out that way Mm, and the diaries missing the photos the extra camera the walking in the line yeah walking in the line yes they were being led yes the way that they left the line then came back into the line as well yeah yeah someone's Um, going to get in line yeah and i wonder how many people were there i don't Mm -hmm. think it would have been one person yeah, I think there would have been multiple people. And people say, well, where were their footprints? But then remember that we they never could get an accurate amount of footprints yeah, because people were walking I mean. on top of each other's footprints. But yeah. also, what if those other people had skis on? You know, they were equipped to be out there. You wouldn't have seen their footprints. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what I think. Number one, to me, these were experienced people. They'd done done this stuff before. They knew what they were doing and they knew what they needed to do to survive. So whatever happened, they were scared. Whatever was going on outside their tent, they took their chances going out into a situation that they knew would probably kill them rather than deal with whatever was happening on the outside of the tent. Mm. So it's either that, it's either like a fear thing, like we need to get away from whatever is happening, we need to cut our way out, we need to get away down this hill. And maybe they were frog marching because it was dark and it was windy and that was the only way they could feel safe. You know, like let's stay together, let's stay in a line, that sort of thing. But they knew that leaving in their underwear and without shoes would probably kill them. Yeah. I just feel like they were either terrified or they were being made to go down that hill like that. The fact that they huddled towards the back of the tent first shows me that, yeah, there was either a conversation had or they were being herded together and then told. I think they were herded together. Yeah, that's it. Look, they went down, they went, you know, got to about halfway to the forest line and then 
everything just sort of scatters. You can't see that frog marching anymore. Maybe they just decided we're going to make a break for it. We're going to try and get away from these people if there were people there. Maybe they took off and they separated and that sort of thing and they managed to get to that tree line. Now, who could have been walking them down the hill? Look, I think we need to look at government military stuff. Yeah. And maybe that's why we have our mole in the group with his camera. Uh, You know, maybe he is there as a spy to take photos of whatever they are doing up there. Yeah. You know, maybe he's he's got wind that something is happening up there, some some sort of mystery testing, and he's been told, go up there and take photos of it. And it looks like he was trying to do that, you know, if it was his camera that was used in those photos. Maybe the students are sort of innocent bystanders in this. Yeah, I would say. Yeah. yeah. Um, and maybe whatever they were doing, they got caught. They, someone's, someone military or something has come along them and said, what are you doing? You're taking photos. That is not okay. Yeah. But I mean, to me, the only thing that sort of puts a puts a dampener on this thing is that you think if they were military guys, like they would have shot them and then just disposed of their bodies. Well, maybe that's what they were going to do once they got to the forest line. It's just that they all scattered and got out of their sight. You know, that could have happened as well. Yeah. I mean, I see them scattering, getting to the forest line. And I mean, it's not, it's not easy visibility. It's dark. It's pitch black out there. So someone who is 10 metres away from you, you probably can't see. They're off, you know, half a kilometre away, a kilometre away, and they're in the forest line. Now they're climbing the trees. They're trying to get up high to perhaps look back and see whether or not they can see their torchlight back at the tent or anything like that. Have they gone yet? Are they still there? You know, and then they decide they're still back up there. We need to make a fire. We're freezing, you know. We're going to freeze to death out here. And then you've got... You've got the two guys that are by the fire and you've got you've got the three that were up heading back towards the tent. So obviously they've decided at some stage, stuff this, we're going to freeze to death out here. We're just going to wing it and try and get back to the tent because that's the only place that we know that we can actually survive. And then you've got the other ones that went the other way, you know, the other four, and they're out in the ravine. So they've actually gone further into the forest. Yeah. So I feel like decisions were made. You know, at first they've camped by the, the by the forest line, they've made a fire, they've tried to survive, and then at some point they've gone, we can't have this fire anymore. We're drawing too much attention. Yeah. You know, some have decided to stay there, some have decided to head back, some have decided to go further into the forest, and whatever happened has happened from there. The ones that tried to head back to the tent, clearly they just froze to death on their way back, which is a completely rational thing to have happened given the situation the two guys die at the fire and the others take their clothes and head off into the forest yeah was it their deaths that made them decide to take action did they see them die by the fire and say like that's it that's not going to be us you know so that they've decided to do something about it yeah so the ones that went back into the forest they've obviously made a decision and they've made some planning behind it because they've decided to take the clothes from the dead guys put them on, use them, that sort of thing, and obviously just get away from whatever this threat was. Taking into account the lights in the sky, I think we need to think military, but also we need to look at that radiation on the clothes situation. Yeah, that's what sort of... Yeah, that's really, really weird. And... On all of them? The ones that were found in the ravine. And that can explain the force, their injuries. Their injuries, yeah. 
Also, the um, a couple of them that were found in the ravine were actually found in a running stream. So they'd been there with water running through their clothes and, and running that radiation away, and they still were really, really high levels. Yeah. Perhaps it was like a weapons test that was that's being what covered. I'm feeling. Yeah, that's it. My hypothesis is that that night they started off, they saw something weird in the sky. They saw some weird stuff going down. Some of them were taking photos of it. We know there were strange lights in the area, so that's probably what they saw. We can probably say that. Yeah. They've tried to photograph them perhaps, um, and, and that would have been hard. I mean, even now when you try and take photos of lights and fireworks and whatever, it is hard even with today's cameras. Yeah. So some sort of military phenomena rather than aliens, I think, you know, although, you know, you can't rule out aliens, it might have been aliens. Given what happens later, I think that it just is probably more of a weapons testing situation. I think that some guys came over the ridge and saw them there. The ones that were outside maybe saw them coming and said to everyone, quick, there's you need to get out now. You need to run, everyone run. They were just in their clothes. They were getting ready for bed. You know, they're in their underwear. They decide to rip their way out of the tent. Maybe the soldiers yelled out if they were soldiers. Maybe they fired their guns into the air and that's what scared them. Either way, something scared them. I think that they get out of the tent. They're caught by these people. They're frog marched down the hill. And I just think that whoever was there, they just weren't expecting to come across them. So they were just deciding what they were going to do with them. They were probably buying some time by walking them towards the, the forest. And, and I guess if you're going to murder nine people, you'd want to do it somewhere, you know, that's a little bit more covered over than out in the open on a hill. Yeah. Maybe they were blindfolded. We know about the abrasions and that sort of thing. And from that point, they managed to lose these, whoever they were. And, yeah, and the rest is what we said. Some went back, some stayed and died, some went further into the ravine. As far as the ones that died in the ravine go... I think that probably if we are looking at weapons testing, we know that bombs and that sort of thing will cause those sorts of injuries that are internal and not external. So potentially they just found themselves right in the firing line of these weapons, I think, you know. And maybe they didn't land on top of them. Maybe they just caught the aftershock, but that was enough to just do it. Yeah. So that's my theory. Yeah. Yeah, but you would expect there to be some residual damage to trees and things if there was something like that, but there wasn't. So begs the question, what were those Russians doing out there? What sort of stuff were they inventing? Yeah. Like sonic sonic blasts or something? Yeah, yeah. Well, you never know, you know. Oh, my brain. I know. (laughs) It's, it's my favourite. Uh, it's such a mystery. mystery. Uh, I think that because it is that whole Russian KGB mystery cloaked era Cold War, like you just can't rule anything out really, can you? Yeah. Maybe <laughs> I mean, one the of them was a KGB agent but they didn't know and they got activated. Yeah, maybe. All like, that like, stuff happened as well, remember? Yeah. Maybe yeah. someone said the safe word. Yeah, maybe. Which was split. Yeah. That's it. And, you know, the fact that the KGB just shut that shit down as soon as there was any hint of radiation. And what a brilliant card to be able to play. Radiation, bad, no go for four years. No, yeah, that's it. Don't go up there for four years. It's too dangerous. Yeah. I.e. we'll be doing more weapons testing. (laughs) And the fact that, you know, they hadn't filed their route plan as well shows that it would have been a shock to find them out there. 
But anyway, that's what I think. Okay. I'm with you, I think. Yeah. I think there's still a lot of question marks, but that's the theory that fits the best. Yeah. Look, and I'm just not buying the avalanche theory, which is the favourite theory. It just, there isn't enough evidence. Not enough at all. No. No. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening to us tonight. I hope it's been interesting. Thank you. I hope that one stumped you as much as it stumped me. (laughs) You'll be dreaming about it tonight. Oh, no. All right, everyone. See you next time. Bye. Bye.